Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is a passionate chief executive. His name is Will Butler Adams, and he is the CEO of Brompton Bicycles. Now, you will all no doubt know and probably love Brompton Bicycles, but the story behind the business is an interesting one, which dates back nearly 50 years to when Andrew Ritchie was in his flat overlooking the Brompton Oratory and believed there was a better way to move around the city. Right forward to today, the business is unrecognizable, run from their enormous factory. In Greenford, they now have a range of bikes, an A-line, a C-line, a P-line, a T-line, an electric bike range, and a number of brand collaborations, which are all sold across the world. Now, I'm not really meant to plug products, but summer is on its way. And do check out their website at brompton.com. I had a great chat with Will not long after he had given me a tour of the factory. We discussed his engineering background, how he started his career, how he found Brompton's vision and goals for the company, which, by the way, are quite big. Will's a legend. If you have any questions, then do get in touch at whyinvest at waverton.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Will Butler-Adams, welcome to the podcast. Will, let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? So I grew up in the north of England, just outside York. And academic vigor, rigor, just didn't exist. I was interested in trees, dens, roaming around, couldn't see the point of learning most things. but found as I headed towards A-levels that I could actually do maths and science. So uh, they were the sort of the best of my sort of talents that weren't exactly exemplary. And at that point, my parents decided that I ought to become an accountant like my uncle. I knew something about accountancy, which was, I thought it was boring. And that may be unfair on accountants, but I, that was my position at the age of, of 17 or 18. And I had heard of this thing called engineering, which I knew nothing about, but I reckoned it couldn't be more boring than accountancy. So I decided, because I'd been to the sort of, you know, careers advice, that I was going to become an engineer. And of course, my parents decided that was a really bad idea. So this was the first ever bit of a sort of tete-a-tete. And luckily for me, because university was not paid for and it was basically free, I weighed in and I said, no, I'm not going to become an accountant, I'm become an engineer. And, and I won that battle, went off to Newcastle, did engineering, and actually found it tough, but worked hard, came out with the first, and then um, thought I was going to solve the world's problems with my amazing engineering skills and ended up in Middlesbrough running chemical plants, which was not part of the plan either. Isn't that funny? Life never goes according to plan. And then um, thought I'd spend 18 months there and find a really amazing job. And then to my amazement, found that the job in Middlesbrough was pretty amazing. It was unbelievably stimulating, exciting. I was actually trying to make the world better by making chemicals in a better way with less waste. And it was exciting because we were playing with millions and millions of pounds worth of kit that if they went wrong would kill people. And that makes the engineering come alive massively. This was at ICI. This was at ICI. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then after five or six years, I thought it was time to move on. I thought I'd go and sort of do the MBA. And in the midst of all of my GMAT studying, I bumped into a guy on a bus in London who happened to be a great friend of the inventor of the Brompton 
he asked me if I'd be interested to go meet the founder. And I said, yes, not thinking anything of it. And that was 20 years ago, 21 years ago, 22 years ago. Gosh, can't quite remember. Time flies indeed. So what then drew you to the world of fold-up bikes? Was it just an incidental bumping into, or had you always had a nurtured a sort of passion for two wheels? Well, I used to go on my bike to work when I was in Middlesbrough, but no more or less, I think, than most people. No, it wasn't the bike that drew me to working for Andrew. I mean, the company was tiny. There were about 38 staff. Andrew had done all the hard work getting the thing off the ground. But I was drawn by the fact that the facility, from my perspective, was a joke. It was so old school. It was so inefficient. You learn at university, lean manufacturing. I'd worked for Nissan in Madrid. I'd worked for Calsonic in Sunderland. I'd seen best practice. And this was like a million miles away. So I thought, oh, my God, I can definitely help. There are stuff here, riddle in stuff I could make better. And then, of course, there was London. I'd lived in Yorkshire all my life. I'd been in Middlesbrough and London was glitzy and glamorous and exciting. So I thought, you know, I'll come and take a risk, work for a slightly eccentric inventor in a very cool city and probably end up going back to my MBA in a couple of years. And that didn't happen because the bike, which wasn't why I took the job, sort of got under my skin. Mm -hmm, I see. And you kind of introduced him, but this was Andrew Ritchie, the founder of of Brompton. I wonder if you can just pause and just do a a sort of potted history of the Brompton bicycle and Andrew, the inventor. So the Brompton was invented in 1975 by Andrew Ritchie. He and I are both engineers, but he's just in a different league. I mean, he's an absolute flipping, insanely amazing conceptual designer his he can see things in 3d in his head you know i struggle to get my head around stuff in 2d he left cambridge was never going to work for anyone else he's far too intelligent and thought most people he would work for would be stupid his first business went pear-shaped he got his friends to put money in and then his father was worrying about him he heard about a guy making folding bikes called bickerton he shoveled him off to go and look at mr bickerton and see if he could get a job for him andrew in, in true form went for the interview, came back, decided that the Bickerton bike was pretty rubbish and he could do a better job to his father's absolute dismay. And that's what he set about doing. And he really was creating something that he wanted. It wasn't for anyone else. He wasn't thinking about becoming a millionaire. It was He just wanted to create something that would be useful for him. And um, he designed it in his flat on the Cromwell Road overlooking the Brompton Oratory. That's why the name. And uh, he created it and then thought everyone else would see what an amazing invention it was. Um, he went to rally and lots of others. And of course, they didn't. They thought it was never going to sell and it was far too complicated and too expensive to make. So not on your Nelly. And after six years of knockbacks, he decided he'd better do it himself. He made them for two years. Then that went and got into trouble because he wasn't making enough profit. And then it took him another six years to find the funding. So with all the bits in between, nearly 13 years, it took him to get it off the ground before one of his customers put money in, Julian Verica the founder of Name Audio, if you've got any enthusiastic uh, sort of music fans. And then he got going in 88, and then bit by bit, the company grew. So when you joined in 2002, you mentioned it was 30, 38 people. And where were the operations and sales channels? How were these bikes being sold? So effectively, we were turning over just under 2 million quid. And that's a mighty achievement. But really, we were a manufacturer. And we made a product, and then a distributor came and picked the product up from us. And the distributor really did the marketing in country, 
and the promotion of the brand and selling it to the stores and the customer service. We were the distributor in the UK. So we had an element of that responsibility in the UK where we, you know, but I mean, it's hard to get your head around. You know, the website was pretty much non-existent. It really was. Andrew turned down buying Brompton.com and we ended up having this thing called BromptonBicycle.co.uk and we were still on MS-DOS in 2002. We had no budgets. We had no meetings at all. There wasn't a single meeting. There were no plans, forecasts. There was no strategy. We just did our best and got obsessed about engineering. And had we not had that, we wouldn't have the bike. But that was never going to get us to engage new audiences and, and explain to them how flipping awesome this product was. And also, we couldn't make enough bikes because we were trying to do everything and we needed to outsource things that weren't special and focus on the bits where we really added value. So what changed and at what point did things change? And what points did perhaps you start you know, thinking more holistically about your market and the various channels through which you can sell? So I would say within about 18 months of using the bike, it changed my life. I mean, I am not an urbanite, and yet I was loving living in London because I had this bike and whizzed about in it. And in the same period, I met more and more of our customers and found that this bike had really made them happier, which is pretty rare, actually. Most products profess to change your world, but they don't. They're oversold and overrated. But this little bike was not. It was genuinely delivering. Remember, at this stage, I'm like 28, 29 you know, your ambition is pretty lofty at that age. I thought, right, this thing's going to change the world. And it hasn't changed since. And my ambition, I didn't sort of go bit by bit. I went straight to, this thing is insane. We can change the world with it. Then you've got to come all the way back down to earth and say, well, okay, so what's the next step? And you need to take little steps. But the ambition went big very early. I never thought this was like a 50 million top out business ever. I've always felt this thing could be massive in terms of its impact on society it's so relevant and then it was a case of taking steps and and when you're in a business where you are growing you don't need to be a genius to work out what the next thing is to do they come at you pretty hard and you have some really important things you need to get over that challenge and then the next challenge appears and initially the first challenge was we couldn't make enough bikes so we need to restructure how we made the bikes we need to clear out a load of you know, the factory is full of stuff and we need to create space and use space to add value rather than store more clutter. And, you know, we just need to start employing people that understood about lean manufacturing and operational efficiency and work with some great organizations in the UK. So that was, you get the bikes going and then you need to start looking about how you communicate and engage a wider audience. It's quite interesting because you do have a pretty loyal fan base customer base and they kind of work as your marketing nodes i guess and you know, it's a bit like you know no how do you know if someone's vegan they'll tell you within the first two minutes of meeting them same goes for brompton bicycle owners there's this kind of weird obsession and i wonder where that comes from because it's not you know there are certain products that have it it's not weird it isn't weird at all i'm just repeating what i said earlier but there are very few products that actually deliver that really, really make your life better. They're so rare that when you find them, you want to tell your friends. You want to say, my God, this thing's bloody awesome. I love it. And so it's not about trendy marketing. It's not about, you know, because some cool person was seen using it. It's because it actually really does work. And if you focus on that 
And this is where I think, particularly in our VC-backed world, where everyone's interested in top-line growth and they're looking for market share, and they forget that what really builds a brand is a customer experience. That's everything. And not the customer experience when you buy it and you're really excited and you just bought it and it's brilliant. The customer experience after a year, three years, five years, 10 years. And if you really, really look after that customer experience and care for the product and care for how that customer continues to use and enjoy that product, then you're building a brand. And it's so efficient, as you say, because then the people who do your marketing with the greatest credibility are your customers. And you don't have to spiff ludicrous amounts of money on NAF marketing that no one believes in the first place. It's very interesting. And what about the competitive landscape? How's the competitive landscape reacted to Brompton? Do you see copycats? How do you cope with copycats? So there is a great quote from some industrialist. I should know his name, but I don't. And it says, it takes 20 years to become an overnight success. And one of the great successes of Brompton is that it didn't take 20 years. It probably took more like 35 years for Andrew from his conception to the business becoming sort of well-known. And over that 35-year period, lots of things went wrong. And you're dealing with a product that, if you don't get it right, will kill somebody. It's not like a watch or a handbag where, you know, you buy a copy, it breaks, so what? This is serious. And we're trying to design something that's very light. And so the temptation is to make it weak. And We've got 30, well, we've now got 45 years of experience. We've made a million bikes. And over that period, and particularly in the early years when the volumes were small, Andrew made loads of mistakes at a very small level. And that insight has been wound back into the design of the product. And that insight is not easily established. It's deep, deep engineering in terms of material science, manufacturing process, and design. So even though people are both copying us, straight out copies, or trying to make other folding bikes, they don't have that insight. So they can make something that looks good, but the test is three or four years down the line. And in many cases, it looks great for the first year or two, but they start having problems three, four, five years when they start breaking and people hurt themselves. And suddenly the margin they thought they had is being absolutely annihilated. And that it's because unlike a normal bike, there's so much pressure to have it light. People think they want light, normal bikes. They're better to go on a diet because the first thing they do is get on the bike and ride it. Whereas with a Brompton, it's actually dangling on the end of your arm. So that weight really matters. I think it was uh, Eddie Cantor who came up with the uh, It Takes 20 Years to Make an Overnight Success. Well done. Not that I've just Googled it or anything. Um, <laughs> I want to bring us right up to date and, and you know, outline the operations today. And you were kind enough to give me a tour of your very impressive factory in Greenford. and. I wonder if you can just, for the listeners, describe what it looks like now, you know, how many people you're employing there and, you know, the number of bikes that you can actually manufacture there. Yes. And I don't want to not do justice to our team, but people are not familiar with manufacturing. And I think probably the thing that they would be surprised by is how many people there are making stuff. I think people imagine everything's made by robots, but you still need human beings. But it's also worth remembering the business is no longer a sort of manufacturer. We have 800 staff, 350 of them are involved directly in manufacturing, 450 are involved in running the rest of the business. So to make a business successful, it requires a lot of other people than making bikes. But in terms of bike making, 
we make the frames. We take raw metal, bend it, form it, crop it. We actually braze as opposed to weld, which is quite high skill. It's um, difficult. It's expensive to train people, but it delivers performance. It uses less heat and weakens the metal less. Therefore, you can have a thinner wall and a lighter bike. It also, because of less heat, causes less distortion, which affects performance as well in terms of efficiency of the ride because you've got very well-aligned wheels. Then it goes off those parts go off to get painted. At the same time, we have about 1,200 parts in the bike. We have something called pre-pre-assembly, where we assemble all the sub-assembly parts, like brake levers, brake calipers, uh, chain tensioners, wheels, all that sort of stuff. And then you get the painted parts and all the sub-assembly bits. Then they come onto the line, and we build all the other bits in batch. But the line is a line. Every 2.6 minutes, a bike comes off the line. We've got three lines and that's a lot of tech, Raspberry Pis, touchscreens, and a lot of data floating around to try and optimize efficiency of the production process. And let's then look to the future. And where do you see the growth in sales? And where do you see the business in three years' time? Do you have your eye on world domination? Um, I don't have my eye on world domination. We have a world crisis. And we, every one of us, needs to get involved in trying to solve it. And that is what drives me. We have really serious stuff we need to deal with. And the three things we need to deal with are climate, biodiversity, and health. The biodiversity bit is not in our neck of the woods, but climate, yes. Most people in the world live in cities. So most of the carbon is consumed through products, transport, heating, and everything in cities. And health in our cities is worse than anywhere else. We made a mistake 70 years ago by dissing the bicycle, the most efficient mode of transport ever invented, through some very smart people who made square metal boxes take up a lot of space and belch out nasty fumes and persuading us that that's how we should live in our cities. That was an error. We need to sort that out. We need to go back to designing our cities around the people that live in them and bringing back active travel so people use their legs and walk and they cycle and cities become clean delightful places and you take the cars out that clutter up cities and take up tons of space and you have a city where you have light electric vehicles and walking in that context that's what excites me we form part of that solution and if you think of the cities across the world and what we're currently our impact and the awareness of our product we haven't even started where um, I think we talked about this when I came to the factory, you know, other cities that have sort of gone too far down the car route. And I think I, we were discussing New York, for example. And I wondered or questioned whether or not New York would be a suitable place to ride a Brompton. Every city has gone too far down the car route, with the exception of very few. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beyond a joke. I mean, it's chronic. And the air quality is a joke. But any city can go back. I mean, New York, 10 years ago, when they put in cycle lanes, People thought it was a joke and it was never going to work. And when they put city bike in, but of course people love it and the infrastructure in New York has got better and better. It's still pretty average, but compared to where it was, it's fantastic. But every city post COVID in COVID, COVID was a tragedy. But one thing that came out of it was for the first time in most people's lives, they saw what a city could be. They saw a city not rammed with cars, Mm. where children felt safe, where families could cycle, where children could take back streets and play in them, where we just gave back space. Of course, you need vehicles 
but you don't need a two-ton vehicle to carry a 70, 80-kilo human being. I can carry a human being on a 10-kilo bike. And of course, people say, well, what about the person who can't ride a bike? Or this? Yes, but they're the minority. Most of us can ride. About 95% of us can ride a bike. And guess what? You can create a vehicle that's a tricycle or a four-wheeled bicycle that's got heat and warmth. But the vehicle can weigh 80 kilos, not 2,000 kilos. What happens when a child gets hit by a 2,000 kilo metal box? Game over. When they get hit by a 150 kilo, it's not going to be good, but it's going to be a hell of a lot better than a 2,000 kilo. And we've got to make these things. You're, when you're driving around in an electric car, the energy isn't to carry you. The energy is to carry the car. You're virtually incidental. It's so inefficient, very efficient for going 70 miles an hour down a motorway. I'm afraid that even with a Brompton, we can't manage that. My legs are going around far too fast. So it's about horses for courses. And if we're going to coexist on planet Earth, we've got to be smart about our resources. We don't need to live miserable lives where we all wear weird clothes and eat weird food and live in freezing houses. We can have a delightful life, but we just need to be smart and use our resources where they're most effective. And at the moment, two-ton metal boxes in cities is a joke. It's preposterous. Where do you think the energy for this is coming from? Should it come from the consumers who are buying the bikes? Should it come from the corporates who are making the bikes? Should it be the investors who are investing in the corporates who are making these bikes? Or should it be government policy? And where does the sort of equilibrium of policy lie? All of the above. But the main drivers in this particular case, based upon where we are in the great journey of planet Earth, the consumer, because they're bored, with seeing people with asthma. They're bored with living a life in a city that's miserable, where they don't feel free, and they have to you know, hold on to their three-year-old's hand in case they let go and they get running into the road. That is not an acceptable way of bringing up your family. It's unacceptable. And there is increasing frustration and demand from the voter, the consumer, the citizen to change how they live in cities, which is where most of us live. The second is government, every government is going to take this seriously because they have got a health crisis on a scale they have never seen before. The average age at which people live, life expectancy is going to go down. The NHS is crumbling in the UK with a generation that were brought up on rations, rode bicycles and climbed trees. 20 years time, when they've got a generation that ate sweets, had you know sedate lives, didn't do the exercise, it's up the creek. So we need to change how we live. And government has to get involved because it can't afford what's coming down the track. Mm -hmm. So it needs to instigate policy to encourage active living. We had that in the 50s. People weren't miserable. They were whizzing about on bikes and they were riding around and they were walking because people couldn't afford a car. And we were on fine. So we need to recognize that and go back to designing our cities around quality of life. I want to return to the business and I wonder where do you have to sort of allocate capital and what are the sort of various jigsaws that are um, maybe keeping you awake at night? Well, fortunately, they're not keeping me awake at night because life's too short and I'm making bicycles. You know, there are worse things in life to be doing and much more serious things going on than that. But in terms of what are the challenges, what's so exciting about growing a business is the challenges are permanently changing. It really is a case of whack-a-mole. And, you know, I mean, none of us would have imagined in a million years what we've been through in the last two years. And that has given us all sorts of interesting challenges. An example of a recent one, pre-COVID, 
we sold all of our bikes through shops, independent bike shops. We just started to have a few of our own independent bike shops, but you could not buy a Brompton online. Even though it comes in a little box and you can literally open the box and ride off on it, we didn't sell direct to consumer. When we had 600 shops across Europe closed down and you know things were looking very, very scary in the first lockdown, and we had plans to deliver direct to consumer, but it was all going to take 18 months. We we're going to do it bit by bit. We threw that into the long grass and just thought, right, we've got to go now. So we just you know, flew by the seat of our pants, lobbed bikes onto Shopify and started getting them to customers and making sure we didn't go bust. So it was all hands to the pumps. Since then, we becoming more sophisticated, learning a lot more. And at the same time as going to direct to consumer, we've taken back distribution across many territories. In the early days, we were not the distributor. We're now the distributor in 20 territories. Now, what's interesting is when you become the distributor and you deliver direct to consumer, you need to have a lot more stock in territory because the online consumer wants to click and two days later get their bike. Well, it's no good because we're in Japan, South Korea, Singapore, you know, Thailand, Indonesia, China. You know, it's no good sort of saying, right, we'll send it to you, we'll be with you in eight weeks. So a recent challenge is more of our cash is going into holding stock in different parts of the world in order to deliver the service that that consumer would expect for an online experience. And there's a whole load of logistics, forecasting. And, you know, when you're, you don't think forecasting as a key competence, you think you're all about engineering and, and, and bicycle design. But actually, if you want to use your capital effectively, being good at forecasting the right products in the right place at the right time suddenly it becomes really important so you don't waste your capital. And in order to do good forecasting, you need to know how to deal with data. So you need business intelligence, which we didn't even know what that meant. And now we're having to learn about it and recruit data analysts. So all this new stuff appears, which you never even thought was part of your business, suddenly becomes rather important. And it's recognizing that it isn't the same problem and it's ever-changing and being alert and ready to understand that this new skill is something the business requires it may not have required in the past. Well, that leads me neatly on to the final question, which is um, to really our younger listeners who uh, are maybe starting out in a career in either engineering or, or wanting to do something entrepreneurial. What, what skills do you think they need to equip themselves with to be successful? You need to persuade people. That's what you need. If you can't communicate, if you can't engage, if you can't articulate what you're trying to achieve, forget it. Kiss it goodbye. Because you need to persuade people to come and work for you. And when you're little, they're going to get paid less than anywhere else. Mm. So they've got to believe in you, what you're doing. You've got to get customers. You've got to persuade customers. Because in those early days, you're weird. Whenever you're entrepreneurial, whenever you're new, you're bringing something different to the market. And everyone's used to the status quo. And you're trying to say, no, 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 look what I've got over here. And you need to engage. And you need to persuade them that it's worth giving you a go. And they're going to have to invest their capital, their time, their shop floor space, or their online space to your product or service. So you have to be able to engage and communicate with people. And it's so funny. My children are really keen on drama. And, you know, people dismiss drama. Oh, we'll need to be really good at maths, or we need to be really good at this, or really good at that. Drama, being able to stand up, communicate, engage, articulate, so important in the world of business. And yet we sometimes dismiss it. And so for me, I think don't underestimate that skill because people invest in you. Even your customers 
they're believing in you as much as the product or service you're selling. Will Butler-Adams, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Will Butler-Adams from Brompton Bicycles. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like it, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.